So, Lonnie, we made it to our interview date. Yay! Yay! I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really glad we were able to make this happen. You've had some unexpected challenges that came up about three months ago because you've got a beautiful little three-month-old baby boy or girl. It's a baby boy. A baby boy. What's his name? His name is Wyatt. Oh, I have a really cool friend that I like named Wyatt. Oh, He's our so little cool. cowboy. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And so that introduced some challenges. So I'm I'm just so glad that you're here to have this wonderful conversation with me. You were diagnosed with stage four cancer after the birth. Is that correct? Yes, actually, we um, had no idea when I was pregnant. And so I went in to have the baby. Um, had the baby, everything went great, and then started having some interesting side effects afterwards. And they did some testing. They were afraid I was having a stroke, but ruled out a stroke and did a CT scan and discovered I had masses in my lung, my liver, and on my spine. So they diagnosed me literally the day after I had my baby with stage four metastatic neuroendocrine cancer. My youngest son, Jordy, was three days old when 9-11 happened. Oh my gosh. It's obviously completely different, but the effect of looking down at this little newborn when I knew the world was changing dramatically, it was different than if I didn't have a newborn in my arms. So I just can't even imagine. And yet. Yeah. Having to, having to kind of balance that with, especially because we've got two other children as well. I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old and just trying to wrap your head around, oh my gosh, you know, we have a new baby. I'm postpartum, you know, I'm trying to breastfeed and dealing with all the, you know, physically recovering from childbirth, but then, you know, trying to wrap your head around, oh my gosh, I have this diagnosis. And what does that mean? And what does that mean going forward? And they immediately um, rushed me into surgery to place a chemo port. And I was starting chemo within a week of having a new baby. And it was just, it was definitely a chaotic time. (laughs) Oh my goodness gracious. So they, um, it seems like the doctors that you're working with have a um, a sense of what would be the appropriate thing to be doing. This isn't a, we're not sure, scratch our head and think about it for a while type of situation. Well, and unfortunately, because it was metastatic and because it had spread to so many places, they wanted to jump on it right away, but they still actually don't know where it started, which is kind of bizarre for my particular case. They call me a unicorn. Um, oh, oh no. <laughs> The one time you don't want to be a unicorn. It's totally true because they all tell me they've never seen a patient my age with this particular kind of cancer and um, they don't know where it started. So it's considered cancer of unknown primary origin. They just Mm -hmm. know it's in my lung, it's in my liver, it's on my skeleton. So like on my spine, but they don't know where it started. So they just, they're like, this is just kind of weird. So we're going to try to just blast it with chemo to begin with, and we're going to see what happens. So that's kind of where we're at. <laughs> right, right. I, you know, throughout this, because you and I have been chatting actually for, I think we were chatting a little bit either before or right after your baby was born. Because I remember the email from you where you're like, well, I just had a baby and just found out I have cancer. And I was like, oh, so um, this is, uh, you, you just have sounded so upbeat, Oh, thank you. I, I am a firm believer that attitude is everything. And I think especially with cancer, you have to go in with a positive attitude. And, you know, I was really inspired by um, the singer Nightbird. She was the one that was just on America's yeah. Got Talent. Yes. And she just had, I mean, I literally that came on the day I came home from the hospital that I saw that episode where she sang and 
and it was sharing how she has cancer in her liver, spine, and lung. And I was like, oh my gosh, my bird, me too. And and she talked about how you can't wait until life is, isn't hard anymore before you decide to be happy. And Mm -hmm. I just, that spoke to me so hard because I was just in such a dark place when we first found out. And Mm -hmm. I just kind of, I don't know, she said that and it just kind of spoke to me. And I was like, you know what? You're right. I can't wait until things aren't hard anymore. And I have to choose to be happy and I have to choose to be positive and look for all the the beautiful things. And, you know, one of the weird things about having stage four cancer and facing a potentially terminal diagnosis is Mm -hmm. you just appreciate everything so much. And it just makes you value every little moment you get with your kids and every fun thing you get to do. And I just, it's bizarre to say that I'm, I've never been happier in my life, but it's also true. Like, I just feel like everything is so vivid and beautiful and special. And I just, I don't know, it it allows me to just enjoy every moment for what it is. I hear you. I absolutely hear you. I, a couple of, um, a couple of years ago, I had a health scare and it made me think about some things differently. And one I was like, well, what's the purpose of life? Which is a, trust me, this isn't going to be long because that's that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like, I was like, it was the first time I think in my life where I, you know, I'm also in my forties and I, I suddenly thought, oh gosh, that now I understand why people ask that question because you, when you're younger, it just seems obvious what the purpose is in a way. And, and then I thought, well, I guess the purpose is a life well lived and what would make a life well lived. And I thought, well, everyone always wants to be that person who dies happy. They're like, if I can just die happy. And then I thought, well, the only way you can be sure that you're going to die happy is if you just choose to be happy yeah. while you're alive. And then whenever you die, you died happy. And I was like, okay, well, then I'm just going to go ahead and see how I can be as happy as possible, you know, while I'm alive. Exactly. And, you know, I think for so long, I was the kind of person that was always so future focused and like, mm-hmm. I'm going to do all these things to just get ready for the future so that someday I can be happy. And mm. I just realized like, oh my gosh, my future is, I don't know what my future is. Do I have a year to live? Do I have five years to live? Do I have 10 years to live? We don't really know. And mm-hmm. the reality is none of us know. I mean, right. I could go, go out and get in a car accident tomorrow and the cancer could never have mattered. And yeah you know, we're all terminal in a sense, and we all never know how much time we have. And so to just constantly be putting off happiness to like, well, I'll wait till I can get this job, or I'll wait until I can finish this degree, or I'll wait until I can buy this house or meet this person or get married or have kids or whatever. And we put all that stuff off. So we think that will bring us happiness instead of just figuring out what makes me happy now and what brings me joy now and Mm -hmm. embracing those things now, because now is all we have. And if we don't practice finding happiness in our day now, then 30 years from now, when we quote, have a bunch of stuff, we're going to be way out of practice on figuring out how to be happy. Yeah. You yeah. know, at that moment, well, like, and yeah, exactly. Cool. We'll get there and not know how to appreciate it. Exactly. <laughs> I know. I know. Okay. Okay. Well, well, that was a deep dive into sort of what's going on with you right now. I really wanted people to be a bit grounded in where you're at, but why don't you tell people sort of professionally what it is that you do with your life above and beyond being a mom of three kids? Yeah, well, actually I was a middle school teacher for about 10 years. So I taught middle school math and science. And then um, I've recently transitioned to writing full-time. And I also 
It was in the process of finishing my master's in clinical counseling with an emphasis in marriage and addictions. Specifically, I really wanted to work with couples that had been affected by addiction. I actually had to make the decision with my cancer diagnosis to stop going to school for that. But I have a bachelor's in psychology and I've almost, you know, had a master's degree in clinical psychology, but that was something I was hopefully planning to do, but obviously life's kind of shifted a little bit now. And so now I'm, I'm just focusing on writing full-time and being a mom and just loving my life. So folks, if you um, at some point have to leave us before this interview is over, you can always go to marchtwisdale.com and under the podcast section, you're going to find all my beautiful guest authors, including Lonnie. And in her bio will be information about her website and her books. So if you have to go, you just go to marchtwisdale.com and you can catch up with everything that Lonnie's doing. So let's talk about your books now. Um, yeah. You have a, you've been working with Blackstone Publishing for the entire process? Yes, Blackstone Publishing, and they've been fantastic. And you have an agent? I do. My agent is Samantha Wexstein with Thompson Literary in New York, and she's fantastic as well. <laughs> of course, of course. Excellent. Good, good. So we'll talk a little bit about your um, publishing experience for some of our writers who always love to sort of like hear the background story. But um, let's see here. Why don't you tell us about your book series and maybe just a little bit about the inciting incident in your life that triggered you onto this path with regard to this world you've created? Absolutely. My um, my book series is called The Age of the Seventh Sun series. And book one is obviously The Seventh Sun. And um, it's a historical fantasy. So it is a fantasy world um, that is inspired by kind of ancient Mesoamerican mythology and history. And so um, it's a fantasy kingdom, a fantasy empire. But in this empire, the emperor has just died. And his son is about to um, ascend to the throne. And in order to do so, he has to select a wife from one of the noble city states within the empire. And the wife, so he will pick a wife. And then the girls that he doesn't choose are going to be sacrificed to bless his marriage to the one he does choose. Lovely. So it's basically kind of a Hunger Games meets The Bachelor, I guess oh. you could say. <laughs> Wait, wait, you mean that actually the girls actually have a chance to sort of compete for his affections? Kind of, they, it's, it's more bacheloresque where they're kind of like, you know, they kind of go on dates and they kind of get to know each other. And, but, uh. but the, the consequence at the end is if you do not get picked, you will die. So, um, it's, it's kind of much higher stakes than the bachelor. I Bonnie, that is so <laughs> evil. I'm just feeling for this poor prince. Yeah, he's and, and on top of it, I'm, I'm so mean to him in the story. Um, but on top of that, he also is worrying that the world might be ending because, um, a lot of the, the myth of the, um, the Aztec myth of the five sons was kind of a major right. inspiration point for the story. And so in the original mythology, the world has been destroyed and created multiple times. And each time that happens, a God has to sacrifice themselves to kind of recreate the sun. Um, and so that's happened in my world seven times to where the world's been destroyed and created seven times. And so um, it looks like the sun might be fading where he's noticing that it's starting to set earlier and earlier each night. So on top of having to worry about finding a wife, he is also now worried that the um, current seventh son might be dying as well. So he's got to worry about that. And is he the God? He is a descendant of the sun God. So his part of his responsibility is to raise the sun each morning with kind of the blood of his ancestor. And so 
um, my main characters are all descended from a different uh, god or goddess and have these kind of magical abilities because of their um, godly ancestor. Okay. So seriously, girl, how'd you come up with all that? Well, and I, I don't mean like I'm... all the details. I mean like initially <laughs> what, you know, like you're walking through your life and you go, oh, Mesoamerica, bam, you know. <laughs> Well, it, it mentions in my bio, my, my parents actually live in Mexico. And so um, my sisters and I spend a lot of time down there. My stepdad lived down there for 20 years. And then um, when he came back up to the United States, he met my mom, they moved back down and they actually manage a drug treatment center down in Mexico right now. And so my sisters and I are down there a lot. And I've just always been really fascinated with Mesoamerican history, specifically like the ancient, ancient Maya, the ancient Aztecs. I just, I don't know. I've, they've always fascinated me as a, as a culture and just sure. as a history nerd, mm-hmm. I love studying history. And so getting to see so much of that in person, it just really inspired me to look into the mythology. And like I said, the, the myth of the five sons really kind of is what sparked the idea for the story. I just loved this idea of the world being destroyed and recreated multiple times. And Mm -hmm. that this, this culture that believes that they have to literally do these rituals and do these things in order to prevent the next apocalypse from happening. And just that, I don't know, that fascinated me. And that really kind of was where the, the kernel of the, of the story idea really started. So I'm curious because I have not done a deep dive into the history of the people who lived in Mesoamerica and that part of the world, but I've, I feel like I've picked up on sort of what would be that general community chatter, you know, what shows up in little movies or whatever about it. And so I'm wondering, since you obviously know way more than I do, when it comes to the real world history, do can you explain a little bit about what the goal was for all those um, sacrifices that the, um, this is the Aztecs, not the Mayans, which I know is more your focus, but do you actually know why they were cutting open all those people and pulling their hearts out? <laughs> um, actually, it's really interesting to study um, a lot of the sacrifices that they did. Um, they believed that blood had incredible power. And mm-hmm. um, and like I mentioned, part of their mythology was the idea that the the world had been destroyed. And so in order to recreate the sun, they had to, um, a God had to sacrifice themselves in order to create the sun. And so a lot of the rituals that they did, they believed were kind of repaying that debt that was paid in order to save them. And so they believed that the sun had to continually be nourished in order to keep going. And so it was kind of this idea of feeding the sun, but then also repaying this debt as a thank you to the gods for saving them. And so there's a lot of really deep, Um, religious significance as to why they would do these sacrifices. And so it was really fascinating to read a lot of that. And um, a lot of their, um, they did these things called flower wars, which were actually, they would stage battles for the purpose of capturing, not killing, but for the purpose of like capturing um, enemies in order to be used as sacrifices to to nourish the sun. And so it's it's really interesting to go into some of that. And um, yeah, I read, I read some textbooks specifically um, on the history of that. And it's really interesting to get into. So I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm thinking partly because I'm very visual, very imaginative, very creative, I guess. So I, I was like um, just standing here sort of feeling in a way what it would feel like to be a person who's living in a world where you actually think that if you don't take action, the sun isn't going to rise. Mm-hmm. I mean, that plays a huge part in the story, too. Well, yeah, but just think about like in the past 2000 years, at least when it comes to the Judeo-Christian 
perspective, I don't think there's been anything in that arena of faith that suggested that the human behavior was actually what allowed the the world as it was to exist. There was, you know, this infinite God that definitely was going to last forever, created everything. So, of course, that sound's going to come up constantly. And it's, you know, and, and I'm sitting here thinking, well, what about the people in North America? Did they actually feel like there was, did they just trust, you know, in, in Mother Nature and in, you know, the sun to rise? Or did they have fears? And what about the Bushmen, the Kalahari? I'm sitting here suddenly thinking, who else in the world thought that the sun rising was up to them? That is a really interesting perspective. It really is. And yeah, and like I said, it, it plays a really big part in the story specifically. And Akin's, my, my prince character, his, his personal sense of responsibility for making sure that literally the whole empire survives because of it. The world. <laughs> the world, yeah. Wow. Do you know of any other examples of recognized um, societies throughout human history that actually thought that way? Or is this really unique? Well, I know um, ancient Egypt had beliefs where they believed that the Pharaoh himself was responsible for raising the sun. So I, I think there are some other cultures that probably did view that. But I, yeah, I think specifically the, the ancient Mesoamerican um, cultures, uh, um, specifically, I think, yeah. It did. was unique. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah, of course, the Greeks and the Romans, it would have been Apollo and then whoever the Roman version of Apollo was, is that Mercury? I don't know. But, you know, he like flies across the sky, pulling the sun in his chariot. Yeah. But I guess you could say the, some of those people who went to the temple of Apollo and donated something were like, please bring the sun back tomorrow. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, then, what a wealthy, um, incredible, vast array of already existing myths and cultures you had to sort of look at. And then you just pulled them together. And as you said, you created what you see as fantasy rather than um, historical fiction. Right. This is definitely a fantasy. So um, it kind of like in the same way that George R. R. Martin took England as his inspiration for the Game of Thrones and right. Westeros. Right. I, I kind of did a similar thing where I created a fantasy kingdom that is inspired by um, some of the Mesoamerican um, empires, but it is definitely its own fantasy kingdom. Well, when this gets optioned for an amazing movie series and they go down into, you know, what was it, Guatemala and Belize and places like that, um, it's like one thing I know has happened. I have friends that are from Ireland and they're like, you know, when I was a kid, we would ride our bike along this little simple road that had a bunch of trees growing on it on our way to school. And now you can't do that because there's like, you know, 25 tour buses there with a bunch of people from all over the world hopping out to take photos because it was in Game of Thrones. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. Great tourist income, but <laughs> yeah, interesting. Okay. Okay. Cool. So you have themes, um, which are the way writers talk about sort of the um, overarching messages and ideas that they want to bring across in a story. And we were talking earlier about the um, the hopes you might have for your readers that at the end of reading these books, what their takeaway might be. Do you want to talk a little bit about sort of your hopes for your readers? Absolutely. Um, so definitely this series draws very heavily it's, and it's, it's written for teenagers specifically. So it's, it's young adult fiction. And so I think um, 
one wrestling that a lot of teenagers experience, especially maybe on more of a spiritual front is this idea of like questioning why society or why certain systems believe things the way that they do and where does that come from? And, you know, what do I do as an individual within this system that maybe I have questions about why we do things the way we do, or maybe I don't agree with doing certain things a certain way. And how do you, how do you navigate that as someone who wants to ask questions and wants to challenge and wants to stand up and maybe not fit into the box that you're being told you have to be put into. And so I know that's something I personally relate to in my own spiritual journey. And so I think it's something that I, I hope that readers can take away from this as well is that wrestling of, you know, how, how do I ask these questions and what do I do when the system or the society that I'm in doesn't want me to ask these questions and actively pushes back against me or maybe tries to shame me or put me put me into that box that I'm trying to fight against being inside of. And, mm-hmm. and so I think that's something that a lot of people can relate to you know, maybe spiritually or maybe um, in a lot of different ways in their lives. And so I'm hoping that that's a theme that people can pull out of that, because that's definitely a main wrestling that my main character has to go through of, you know, really owning who she is and what she believes and why, and wanting to take personal ownership of that instead of just being told this is what you have to believe and why. Well, and I'm, I'm imagining slash hoping that the prince character maybe doing the same thing. I mean, if he has to meet all these girls and then what I just still can't you, there's this thing, um, you know, I'm not sure if this would fall under the title of high concept or if it just falls under the basic title of unbelievably, incredibly intense stakes, but just right there, you've just like, you got to go meet these people and then you have to choose one and know that the ones you don't are going to die. Like, that's just so intense. I'm, yeah. I just, I, I, I don't know. I guess some princes would be like, this is just the way it is, but maybe others would be like, does it have to be this way? Yeah. And his character, I think I, I love his character because he wants to hold on to the rules and the rituals and, you know, the expectations of like, yep, this is just how it's supposed to be. But I think he kind of feels that that nagging in his heart too of like, but why? And, and is this the right way to do this? And I think he wrestles with that. And then my main girl character really kind of brings that to the forefront for him of like, you know, yeah, let's, you know, why are we doing it this way? And does it have to be this way? And, you know, and I think he has to really wrestle with that because he's like, no, this is what I've always been taught. And I I have to follow through with this. And Mm -hmm. so he really, he really wrestles with that specifically. And I think she kind of makes him wrestle with that. It is really sort of funny that repetitively human beings experience that that twisting inner sense of discomfort when they're in their late 30s and their early 40s and they're watching their children question. And, and they're like, you know, you'll have this, I think you get like sort of in a way you get the parenting fear that the child's going to question something and then create greater risk. And then you also might get some of them who are judgmental and felt like it was their job to teach their child how to be a good human. They might feel irritated and frustrated that the kid's getting it wrong. So, you know, you're going to have different reasons. But then I sit there and I'm always like, okay, find me a generation that didn't do this at this age. Exactly. This is, you know, part of ownership of, you know, of if you want your children to own what you've taught them, they have to be able to, to wrestle with it and really, 
ask and and you know hopefully come to the the conclusions and the answers that we want them to you know eventually but if you want them to own it they have to wrestle with it on their own right and and not necessarily if all the parents who had wanted their children who were questioning their sexuality to just decide to remain on the hetero you know line then we wouldn't actually have some of the incredible beautiful things we have right now so i'm not even sure that like you know, in a way, it's more like you look at your kids and they bring up a challenge. It's like, well, you know what? Maybe the world would be better if everyone changed in that way, in which case you might want to go advocate, form a group, lobby, you know, write your thoughts, put them out there, be a voice for that change. Maybe things would actually be better. Maybe they wouldn't. A hundred years ago, no one had a driver's license to hop on their horse and go riding down the road or in their carriage. And yet now, you know, you can't, you can't drive unless you have a license in your pocket. So what makes one better than the other? Exactly. And I think, you know, each generation brings its own questions and challenges. And, you know, I think a lot about how, you know, in my own family, I think, um, you know, we tease my, my parents' generation for, they didn't really believe in emotions and they believed that you should just stuff emotions and just, you can't trust emotions and you don't deal with them and you just, you just move on and, and that's it. Whereas our generation, the younger generations are coming along saying, uh, I don't, I don't think stuffing emotions is, is really a, is a good way to handle them. I think we need to, <laughs> I think we need to actually deal with them and, and, and process through things. And, and there's a lot of generational tension because of that. Whereas you know, the older generations are calling us snowflakes because we're trying to actually look at and deal with emotions. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at them going, you guys are just in denial. <laughs> <laughs> Challenges to systems and yeah. also female empowerment in your stories. Absolutely. Um, that's, that's a huge passion of mine um, specifically is the idea that, you know, that sometimes women are not able to rise to leadership positions or they're, you know, treated in certain ways. And so for me, I really wanted to have strong female characters and I wanted to have, you know, these female characters kind of challenging the system a little bit and, and challenging female roles in these systems. And so that's, that's a personal passion of mine. And so I was really excited to be able to explore some of that in my book series as well. Yeah. Yeah. Power humans and power always can write a book about that. Can't you? Oh, it's true. That's that's definitely a theme that is easy to explore. <laughs> so you have been, I think you mentioned you've been down to Guatemala and Belize and also that you had largely pulled from Mayan culture, whereas most most people I think have heard of have heard more details around Aztec culture. I'm really curious because so my impression is you had Mayans north and Aztecs a little bit further south, and then you had the Incas way down south and on the side. Like that is literally the the totality of my bare skimming concept. So um, where am I wrong? <laughs> I know I'm getting it wrong. Actually, the Aztecs are north and what? just help. Yeah. What's one of the fascinating things about Mesoamerican history, especially is that there are, there's such a variety and there are so many different groups and um, over time, especially. And so the Maya, the Maya mostly were kind of in, but there were actually different kingdoms. And so there was like a middle kingdom and a Northern kingdom. And um, a lot of Maya is in kind of what we would consider Central America. So the more Guatemala, mm-hmm. um, Belize type area. And so that's, that's where I got to do a lot of my research and got to travel specifically and see a lot of these ruins that date back to, 
you know, thousands of years BC. And so those were fascinating to get to see. And, you know, we're, there's so much that's still even hidden in the jungles that they haven't even uncovered yet. And so, right. I mean, we got to go to one of the places I got to go was Tikal in Guatemala. And there's still these mounds that are just covered that they know there's ruins down there and they don't, you know, they just haven't had a chance to excavate them yet. And so those, um, I spent a lot of time kind of in the Maya middle kingdom in Belize. And so um, a lot of them actually, they believe kind of disappeared as, and it's, it's fascinating too. Um, um, one of the things that I was learning about how is they actually deforested quite a bit of where they lived as they mm-hmm. would build these, these epic cities. And um, as they did, so they altered their environment to the point where they started having severe droughts. And so I think it's fascinating that even thousands of years ago, as humans, we were, you know, not taking care of our environment and as a result, suffering the consequences of that. And so they had to eventually, um, move out of the area as they had deforested to the point that it was causing severe droughts. And so a lot of the uh, Maya from the middle kingdom, they believe went North, um, and then some went South. And so a lot that went North probably ended up merging with eventually what would become some of the more Aztec type kingdoms that would be based out of Mexico. And so, um, wow. What, what year, yeah. what roughly period that you, uh, when you mentioned kingdoms, I'm thinking like, we know that Egypt had the old kingdom, middle kingdom, new kingdom. And that's really a timeline. It's not like a location mm-hmm. north, south. We're talking a timeline, right? Um, they're more, this is more location based, but this is okay. kind of around like 3000 BC, I think. 3000 BC. That is mm-hmm. 5000 years ago. Yeah. So a lot right. of. Okay. This completely, you know, there's this lovely little view of just a bunch of people who crossed over, you know, 10,000 years ago when it was cold and icy and wandered around and. And then just weren't doing much and these brilliant technologically advanced Europeans showed up and just sort of wiped them out, blah, blah, blah. Really not actually the case, is it? Not at all. And actually I have, um, I have a filmmaker friend who um, believes that she's, she's actually made a film about how she believes that um, what eventually ended up becoming the more Aztec Maya Mesoamerican peoples actually came down through North America. And she actually kind of traces how some of the languages that you see from some of the Native American tribes, even here in Idaho, um, are similar to some of the words and, and phrases that you see in the Nahuatl, which is the, the Aztec language. And so she she believes that um, they actually came down through North America before they went down. Well, they had to as they crossed the land bridge sure. to go down south. And she actually traces some of that in one of her films. It's actually pretty interesting. Yeah, I'm just like, I'm just really, you know, yeah, I, I'm grateful that we have been able to recognize the sophistication of the people who were living here thousands of years ago and that we you know after coming out of the past 500 years of people on this side of the Atlantic being written up viewed and conceptualized by the people on the other side of the Atlantic in a completely, um, it's not misogynistic. What would be the version of that? Misogynistic is like men looking down on women. Well, this is like culture looking down on culture. What would we even call that? It's like cultural misogyny. I mean, I don't really know. Culturalist. Yeah. It's, it's just that, that Eurocentric viewpoint of yeah. not appreciating. And that's part of the reason why I love studying this history so much is when you study the history of 
how sophisticated these cities were and, and the systems that they put in place. And it's, it's incredible, the science and the math and the way that they were able to do some of these things. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's fascinating and it's incredible. And it's one of the reasons why I love studying this history so much is just because of how incredible um, these people were and what they were able to do and accomplish. Yeah. I've, I have long, I, when I was, um, I don't, well, let's see, I think I was about, uh, I was about 22 and I just was like, it's been a year or two and the only movies, cause that was back when Blockbuster existed. And the only way you could watch a movie at home was if you actually got in your car and drove to the store and you actually rented for all the people who are young and listening right now and just are used to Netflix. No, didn't exist back then. Oh, I love Blockbuster. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> so I would go to Blockbuster or whatever, and I would go to the international section. Um, and I remember spending like a year and a half, everything I watched was coming out of Asia. I was like, I just need some diversity here. And it was so awesome. It felt like a whole other planet, you know, over there on the other side of this planet. And um, the one thing I haven't seen is like a lot of works focused on our um, Mesoamerican history. And I'm wondering if, um, did you find, is there more exploration, but it's just, you know, in, in Spanish speaking, you know, productions that we're not able to access up here, or is it just still a generally less paid attention to piece of human history? I unfortunately think it's just less paid attention to. And that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why, you know, I, I wanted to read stories about this culture and I wanted to read fantasy based around this and, and I couldn't find a lot. And so mm-hmm. that's, I'm a firm believer. If you, you know, if you want to read something and you can't find it, you write it. And so yep. that's why I started doing research. And, um, you know, I know we had some some cheesy kind of Disney movies. I know there was like the uh, the Road to El Dorado that came out in like the in the late early two thousands, and then um, the Emperor's New Groove, which is the Disney movie that kind of you know had that that Inca feel to it. And so I feel like there's been some yeah. things, but but not a whole lot. And I know um, Mel Gibson did that movie. Yeah, was it like Apocalypto? I think. Uh, yeah, I actually watched that one, and that was. I have no idea how potentially accurate it is to history. But um, right. it was incredibly intense. And I found it really interesting at the very, very, very end where some members, I'm not going to spoil it for someone who hasn't seen it yet, but there's some survivor of this horrible thing. Like I think at like the very end, they're peering out through the leaves of some trees towards the ocean and they see these big weird ships floating up and it just makes you think these poor people got caught between what the Aztecs were doing to them and then court you know um, Columbus and them showed up it's like it was just not a good time or place to be human on the planet right and and that was one of the things where I didn't I feel like so much of what we any story that we read about with with ancient Mesoamerica it always ends up you know ending with the Spanish or the Spanish and end up becoming a part of it. And I didn't want that to be in my books at all. I wanted it to just focus on Mesoamerican culture and mythology. And I didn't want the Spanish to be a part of it at all. Well, and of course, yeah, brilliant move. (laughs) (laughs) Your family has this really cool sort of uh, personal culture around uh, drug treatment, recovery culture, things like that. And you had mentioned earlier what you were pursuing in your university degree. So um, I think it was a master's with an emphasis in addiction, specifically couples. Yeah, specifically couples. Yeah. So much of 
addiction treatment focuses on just the addict. There isn't a lot that focuses on the family of the addict. And specifically, I wanted to work with couples that, you know, where maybe the addict has reached sobriety and they, you know, they've reached a point where they're, they're sober, but then how do you then bring an addict back into the family system? And how do you repair a marriage that's been damaged by addiction? I saw a huge gap in that world. And so that was where I really wanted to kind of focus in. And, you know, my own husband has experience with addiction and it was something that we had to kind of navigate ourselves. And so Mm -hmm. I just saw a huge need in that particular area. And after having walked through it ourselves, you know, watching my family walk through it with my stepdad, who has 22 years sober now. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've walked, I've walked through addiction in the family as the daughter of an addict, but also as the wife of an addict. And so how do you help the family system? And I just think there's a huge need there. And that was something that I was really passionate about doing and still am, even if I can't finish my master's degree, I still um, lead women's support groups and work with families. And like I said, my family actually manages a drug treatment center down in Mexico. And so it's something that our whole family Um, My sister is actually a marriage and family therapist as well. And um, it's something our whole family kind of, you know, is passionate about working with. Gravitated towards for all sorts of brilliant reasons. And remember, you've decided temporarily to not complete the final steps of that master's. It doesn't mean that you're not going to. Yeah, I'm I'm hopeful that, you know, in someday in the future, like I said, if my cancer treatment goes well and and that's working and and that I, I would like to go back and finish that master's eventually. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't you actually tell us a little bit about the drug treatment center that your family has in Mexico? I'm curious. Um, my first thought when you mentioned it is whether it's primarily serves people who are local residents in the area in Mexico, maybe like just, you know, a less expensive, good location for people who are from other places in the world and need a retreat type of environment. I'm just really curious about some of the details. Yeah, it's actually both. So they um, they do service the local population there as well. And they run um, meetings and groups for just the local population in um, Pescadero is where it's located. So it's about an hour north of Cabo San Lucas, kind of the southern tip of Baja. So they get a lot of Americans that come down um, to do treatment down there. But then they also yeah do work with the local population as well. It's mostly a drug detox. So it's where kind of you go down to medically detox. He works with local doctors and nurses that, um, that come in and kind of help you come down off of whatever substance that you're addicted to. Mm-hmm. And then it's usually about a two week kind of program. And then um, from there, they kind of help connect you to maybe sober living or connect you to different resources to hopefully be able to help maintain your sobriety once you've, once you've left their facility. I would say the physical side is a significant piece and yet also perhaps incredibly small compared to perhaps the psychological and psychosocial and emotional side. Absolutely. So they, they work with doctors and nurses to help with the medical detox, but then they have social workers, counselors, and they do a lot of alternative treatments where they do yoga, they do um, acupuncture, they do they take you surfing because my stepdad's um, actually a national champion surfer. He is wow. on the surfers. He's in the surfers hall of fame and he's a huge surfer. And that's a big theme of their detox is actually called Las Olas, which means the waves. Wow. What a great name on so many levels. It, it really is. And so as wow. a surfer, his, his saying that he just lives his life by is hit the bottom, make the turn. And you know, when you're catching mm-hmm. a wave and you're coming down the face, you have to, you know, when you hit the bottom, you have to make the turn in order to ride the wave or else it'll just pummel you. And so that's his kind of perspective with addiction as well as, you know, you hit the bottom, but then you have to make the turn. I was thinking about a couple of times when I've been pummeled by waves that have actually 
made me hit the literal bottom scrape, 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 sand yes. of bathing suit. <laughs> and you still have to make the turn upward to where the air is. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so that's that's yeah. really where the name of the Las Olas recovery comes from. And um, and yeah, their their slogan is hit the bottom, make the turn. <laughs> nice. Nice. Wowzers. Well, congratulations to to you and your husband for being able to navigate that situation. It was definitely a challenge. And, and that was partly why we were so excited to have our third baby. It was kind of like, oh, yay, we've kind of come through this this rough journey. And now this is kind of the redemption at the end of that difficult story. And then yeah. oh, we'll throw cancer in on top of it. But yeah. hey, we're, we're yeah. tough and we can make it through. So we'll... <laughs> Well, there, I mean, you know, there's that thing I hear a lot of people who are, um, I think it's usually a Judeo-Christian faith. I don't know if they say this in other faiths, but you know, the idea of, you know, God doesn't toss it to you unless you can handle it or something, which I um, must think we can handle quite a lot. I know. So. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here thinking like, I mean, for me personally, that wouldn't, I'd be irritated to hear that, but I, it was a thought that just flashed through my head. I was like, well, you know, y'all have made it through a bunch you've got tools that maybe a lot of people don't have yeah it's definitely and i think it, it taught us a lot and it gave us a lot of tools that i think we're going to be able to use to navigate through this cancer journey as well and so i am actually surprisingly really grateful for a lot of what we learned and i think our marriage is stronger than it's ever been and um mm -hmm. and a lot of that i credit to yeah what we had to go through and walk through with with his addiction so no that's actually such a brilliant point brilliant point um well so we do still have Thank goodness, um, almost a quarter of our hour left to us. And so I'm wondering if you wanted to take some time to talk a little bit about what it is that makes stories so powerful for the human species. Um, oh, yes. I, this is such a, pa a passionate topic of mine, just as a psychology student as well, but also as a writer. Mm -hmm. um, I just think I love, um, and even like my little slogan on my website is just um, that I love the transformative power of story on the human experience. And that is just like my personal mantra of story. And that I believe story is one of the most powerfully transformative things that we can do. Because I know as we were, we were talking a little bit about before um, the interview started about how you can read something from a nonfiction perspective. Like you can read about climate change or you can read about something from a very educational standpoint and mm -hmm. it sticks in your head and you know the facts, but to, to read and learn something through story involves, and it takes you to an emotional level that is just so much deeper where it connects the heart. It brings in the heart and it brings in emotion. And, you know, I was a teacher for 10 years and I know that there's a huge difference between just telling your students something and having your students experience something. Right. And if you, if you want someone to learn something and truly know it and learn it, you have to experience it because experience just forms so many more connections in the brain. It brings in emotion. It makes things stick. And so I think that's the beautiful thing about story is that story allows us to experience what we're learning instead of just hearing about it. And, um, we all sort of, I think we all sort of get that, right? Like we all sort of like, we'll say, we know this is true because we've read a fictional story and we've, we've felt that. And, but you said that there's actually like some, um, MRI studies that have confirmed this for anyone who might still be arguing the point or something like that. What was yeah. that? What was that? What's interesting is they've actually done functional MRI studies of people that they have shown that when you read a story, you actually 
is a part of the brain that is lit up shows that we are experiencing stories as participants, not as observers. And so literally our brains put ourselves in the, the place of the character or of the protagonist. And so when we are reading a story, we are experiencing the emotions along with the character. Mm-hmm. And so as the characters learning these lessons and experiencing these things, we experience them as the reader, which right. is fast. And, and there's a great book that talks about it. It's called um, Story Genius by Lisa Cron. And she, she talks about how there's actually like a survival value to story, that the mm-hmm. reason why story is so important to humans and is because it's it's a survival thing this is how from the beginning of time we would share stories and then that's how we would learn how to survive and so yeah oral traditions yeah if I can hear the story about how you were able to avoid the saber-toothed tiger and I can now I now have that information and knowledge that is something that I can then take with me and I now know how to hopefully survive a saber-toothed tiger if I am to encounter one and so it's interesting that story she argues has like it's it's actually a survival thing that that we as humans have developed storytelling as a means of survival well and if you think about it because you know it's like you've you've got a bunch of you know I don't know Homo erectus, Neanderthals, it doesn't matter which ones they were, but, you know, they're hanging out. And one of them's, as you say, explaining how I avoided, you know, dying from the saber-toothed tiger attack or, or whatever. Um, those stories, though, when they are being told, they, you know, because you could, a nonfiction book could technically be called a story if it's about, you know, Shackleton down in the Antarctic or it's about, you know, something that happened. But um, when an oral tradition in those situations, when the stories are being told, there's not a person who's sitting there very calmly, who's explaining exactly what direction they turned. You know, it's not told in that way. They're standing up and the children's eyes are big and they move and they, you know, their voice changes and they, they act out, enliven and, and create the story in a way where I think you're right. And it, it, the children are going to receive it on the emotional level. And I think one of the things that's interesting for me is if I'm sitting, how many of us have sat in a dry, boring classroom while a teacher is lecturing us about something and we walk out of the room and we don't even remember what they were talking about. But if they startle you, if they catch your attention, what does it mean when they quote caught your attention? It, It means usually that something emotional happened inside of you. Exactly. We are emotional creatures. Right. To tie in emotion, it just ties in so many more parts of the brain and then it just engages us so much more. And so, yeah, I I know as a teacher, if I could make my students have an emotional experience with what I was teaching, that was going to stick. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my goodness gracious. Yeah. So the, the power of fiction and stories to, um, have an impact that is lasting. Exactly. I think, you know, emotions are what color our world. They're what create meaning out of things. And so I think that's what makes stories so beautiful is they bring emotion to what would just be boring dry facts. (laughs) And I think when people talk about, um, I haven't done a lot of study into this, but I have a husband and a couple of friends who were fascinated, fascinated to the point where they bring it up so often. I'm like, I just, oh, I just don't want to hear it. That's <laughs> my personal reaction <laughs> to sociopaths and psychopaths and that sort of idea. 
and and for me, my personal reaction is, I just think it's so sad and and dark and painful to imagine being a person in those shoes that for me, I'm just like, I don't even want to go there. But, you know, these people I know who are fascinated by it, one of the traits or hallmarks, I think a lot of times is an inability to actually feel to be distanced from your emotions or so life as a human without your emotions doesn't seem to actually work well. No, it doesn't. I think, you know, especially you know, what's interesting though, because sorry, my, my psychology degree is kicking in. And Please what's fascinating do. Is, <laughs> go, go, go. What's interesting about like, um, you know, people that have sociopathology or that, you know, they actually do feel emotions. That's the interesting thing. They okay. feel anger. They feel frustration. They feel those, those basic human emotions, but what they lack is empathy. They lack the ability to put themselves in someone else's shoes to feel for another human being. And so I'm always fascinated of how they experience story then, because to me, story is literally being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And so I'm really, I'm really fascinated. I I would be interested and fascinated to, you know, how, how do people like that experience story if they lack the ability to have empathy? Right. Do they like literally, were they like, you know, the person who's just never wanted to be read to as a child, never picked up a book, you know, I mean, or yeah, no one's done a study. I mean, we've, we've got people who are like in institutions and prisons and other places that have been identified. No one's ever like looked into whether or not they find it possible to enjoy and connect with fictional characters. I'm curious. No, I wonder. <laughs> Do they go to the movies? The movies are the same thing. You have to be able to put yourself right. You have to empathize with the character. Yeah. Or just maybe they experience it on a different level or, you know, yeah. Or just they, cause I, yeah. One of the things that I, I actually had to take a class on this and was um, studying. There's a really fascinating book. Um, it's called, Oh, what was it called? It's called um, the boy who was raised as a dog. And he talks about some of um, one of his cases. He talks about, I had to do a, a study on this of a person who is like a sociopath and how they just lack the ability to, yeah, have empathy with another human being. And so they, they feel anger and frustration, but they view other humans and other people as just ways to meet their needs. And so they can get angry and frustrated that like, you're not meeting my need, but then they can't understand what you're feeling. They can't understand, you know, what you're experiencing and they don't see other people and ability to have connection or attachment really is what it is. And so, or they may not actually see other people as being equal to themselves. Yeah, it's like so if could, you can't empathize with the the pain, suffering, needs, or wants of another person, but you can empathize with your own wants and needs, then maybe it automatically just shifts you slightly higher than all the other humans around you. Well, I think that's that's what you end up seeing and why they can do sometimes really horrific things because it's about meeting their needs. They don't really care about anyone else. So it's interesting to me. I wonder like with stories, those kinds of things, it's if it meets a need for them or if it, you know, satisfies one of their needs in some way, they can enjoy it in that sense. But I wonder if their brains would, would respond differently on that MRI study mm-hmm. of being able to experience a story as a participant, as opposed to necessarily just an observer. Well, and then there's the question of whether or not these, you know, nurture or nature, because if part of it is that you just see yourself as being imminently more important than all the people around you, even if they have some importance in their ability to give you what you want, you you can't actually value them as an equal because you can't feel for them. Well, then if 
historically when you have, you know, boys and girls who are raised to be, you know, a prince or a princess and they're all, you know, they're surrounded by servants, they're surrounded by people who grovel around them constantly, would that actually create a psychopathology in someone who otherwise had the, you know, the natural ability to empathize, but we drive it out of them? It's all very fascinating. There I go. (laughs) (laughs) Any thoughts on that? I wonder, I, I'm a firm believer in attachment theory personally is, is kind of my, my theoretical orientation. And so right. I, I do believe that psychopathology and a lot of that is to, you know, I believe there is probably a, a genetic component to some of it, but I do believe that there is a large component of it that has to do with how you were raised and how um, your ability to form attachments at a very young age. And um, right. I believe that the attachment that you form with your primary caregiver is where we learn how to have relationships. And so I believe that, you know, being able to reciprocate facial expressions, being able to experience comfort that like, when you learn at a very young age, that if I cry, my mother will meet my need, you learn to be able to rely on other people. And then you eventually learn empathy from that relationship. And you learn how to, Mm -hmm. you know, and if you lack that, I think that's really the main source of where a lot of that comes from is that you learn that people aren't going to meet my needs. So I have to meet them myself. Mm-hmm. And, and if you never learn to trust or experience comfort from human interaction, you know, I think that eventually develops into just, yeah, viewing people as ways to meet your needs. Wow. Okay, then. <laughs> I, I was sitting here thinking, well, she's in Idaho. I'm in Washington. I'm like, okay, if we each drive five hours, we could meet somewhere and hang out at a coffee shop and have a really great conversation. <laughs> I, I get so into the psychology stuff. That was, that's partly why, I, yeah, I'm such a, a huge nerd with that too. So, <laughs> well, I, I started off with history as, as my major and then um, sociology. And then I was actually a psychology major. And then I got pregnant and super sick with my first pregnancy. And I just stopped at my senior year. But yeah, exactly. This is this, ugh, oh gosh, humans though, still humans. Humans. <laughs> interesting critters. Okay. Well, we are now out of time, Lonnie. So um, I just want to thank you again for joining me on the show. And um, what are the three titles? Because you also have the third title coming up because we actually might be airing this interview in January. So that's because in February on the 15th, you guys are releasing the third, which is what the Obsidian Butterfly? So the Seventh Sun series is a trilogy, and um, book one is the Seventh Sun. Book two is the Jade Bones, which just released in February of this year. Right. And and book three, the Obsidian Butterfly, is releasing February fifteenth, twenty twenty two, and um, we are super excited about that book. It is the yeah. final, and it's going to wrap up the whole series beautifully. I know people <sighs> get mad at me for my my cliffhangers in book one and two, but I promise book three will wrap everything else nicely up with a bow so no cliffhangers in book three. <laughs> oh, anyone who gets upset about a cliffhanger it's like honey that is the whole point i love a good cliffhanger <laughs> oh yes my, my books definitely unfortunately uh, well definitely if you like them good but yes. unfortunately have cliffhangers and so book three will nicely wrap everything up for you <laughs> well and you know it's funny because i actually with both the harry potter series uh the twilight series the hunger game series with all of those i like was peripherally aware of them but didn't actually think they were going to be my type of book until like the last book was coming out. And I finally thought, gosh, golly, why do people like this so much? I'm going to go check it out. So like I literally with all three of those, I never had to sit around and wait for the next book. (laughs) They were already all written. 
So now would be a great time to read books one and two because book three is coming out. So <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So folks, you can go to marchtwisdale.com and you go to the podcast page for Prose, Poetry, and Purpose and you'll see Lonnie there and in her bio will be all of the information you need to find out more about her and her books. And um, yeah, wow. I'm so excited that we have a chance to catch the entire trilogy all at once and um, that there won't be any agony surrounding the cliffhangers. Yes. You will get nice satisfaction of being able to jump into the next book. <laughs> Absolutely. Lonnie, thank you again so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. That was so much fun. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>